All right, well, at this time, our kids, ages four to six, are welcome to gather right up here. Hey, Will, let's wait for, for everybody. Uh, parents, just to let you know, we're going to do something a little bit different than normal. Uh, we are going to have our kids come back into the service at the end for the baptism. And so um, Kyle is going to go and let the Mosiers know after that so that they'll come running back in. We'll give them time to do that. But we want them to be able to, to bear witness to, to this event as well. So we want to pray for our time together, pray for our kids. And so please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this morning where we could gather here as your people who, to sit under your word and to rejoice in who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. And Lord, I pray that that would define us, that our faith in Christ would not be something that we think we can just sort of add on to round out the whole, that, that we would just kind of claim to be in his name but not live for his name. Lord, I pray that we would see truly the wonder and the gift and the beauty of Christ that we've been given. That we would behold the love that you've shown us in his death for our sin and his resurrection so that we might have new life. And even as it's pictured today in baptism, that we would rejoice that you are a God who saves, that you are a God who redeems, that you are a God who gives new life and who calls us to now live for you. Lord, I pray that we each would want that. I pray that for our kids, that they would see their need of Jesus and that they would fall in love with him and desire to live their lives for him. And for us as well, as we talk about baptism, to see just how great this sign is that we've been given, that we can be identified with Christ and with his people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, thanks, guys. Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. You can find it on page 910 in the Pew Bibles there. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, now, wait a minute, Chet. Just last week, we were in Acts chapter 5, and now we're in Acts chapter 2. That seems to be going a little bit backwards. Are we ever going to make it through this book? Well, yeah. Well, obviously, we get to celebrate the baptism of Clint Loom this morning, and there's perhaps no more fitting passage than than one we've already covered in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. This is a wonderful passage uh, to really talk about baptism. And so since it's familiar to us already, I just said, you know what, let's just stay here. Let's stay in the book of Acts. And also, if your memory is better than mine, then probably you would recall that when I preached through Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41, I didn't talk a whole lot about baptism, which is weird being a Baptist preacher and all, right? If you remember, I I talked a lot more about the conviction of sin and repentance and faith and a commitment to walk in obedience to Christ and that being uh, evidence of, of, of the Word and the Spirit clearly at work in our lives. I said almost nothing about baptism, and the reason why I did that is because I knew this day was coming. You see, I was planning ahead. And so, like a good Baptist pastor who hasn't talked about baptism in a while, I thought this is a fine opportunity to to do that very thing. You see, baptism is where the Word of God and the Spirit of God in bringing us to repentance and faith goes public. It's declared. We commend what God has done in us. Now, for some of us, that's a very familiar festivity, right? You, you've, maybe you've seen a lot of baptism. You've participated in one, hopefully. If not, you should come and talk to me afterwards. Uh, hopefully, you understand something of the purpose and significance of baptism, and, and maybe you've even had the opportunity to help baptize others, And so you're here and you're rejoicing with Clint as he responds in obedience by publicly professing his faith in Christ. But if we're honest, perhaps that significance is grown a bit dull. The familiarity of baptism has caused us to look at it as just a very ordinary and mundane and optional thing. 
For others, you might not even get the whole baptism thing, right? You're exploring Christianity. Maybe you would call yourself a Christian. Maybe, maybe you're a child who's just come to faith in Christ. You know, you, you would call yourself a young believer. Or, or maybe you're here just because you've been invited. You know, somebody said, hey, come and, come and check this out. Maybe Clint asked you to come and, and to participate in this with him. And so you're here to, to share in this moment with him, but you really have no idea what's going on here. And that's okay. We're really glad that you're here, and hopefully this will be a time to, to bring clarity to that. We often have a lot of questions, right? And we begin to wonder to ourselves, you know, well, well why do Christians get baptized? Is baptism some sort of rite of passage? Um, you know, does it wash away sin or does it save people? Is baptism necessary for faith in Christ? Does it result in some sort of spiritual or metaphysical change in some person? Or, you know, do we receive the, the Holy Spirit when we're baptized? And, and I hope to provide clarity to some of those questions through our time together. And the best way that I know how to do that is by letting the Word of God speak to us and inform our minds and inform our hearts and and again, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41, is a great passage to do that. Our, in our passage this morning, what we're going to see is that baptism is a necessary response to faith in Christ. Baptism is a necessary response of faith in Christ. And so, please turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Again, it's page 910 in the Pew Bibles. If you happen to be here and you don't have a Bible, the blue and white Bibles that are right there in the pews, those are your gift for being here with us. Just use that in our time together. Take that with you. We'd love for you to have that. I'm going to, um, even though I'm focusing in on Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41, I do want to give us a bit of context. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. So if you wouldn't mind following along with me beginning in verse 22. It says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with, many, I'm sorry, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, and my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, my, may I... I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now in verses 37 through 41, we're going to learn three truths about the nature of baptism. And the first truth is that baptism is a confession of the heart to the word of God. 
You see, Christians are to receive baptism because their hearts have been changed by God, by the good news of Jesus Christ. They want to confess that faith then, both to God and to the world. This is where faith goes public. They want to go on record that they are followers of Jesus Christ. In our context, Peter, this apostle, this one who has been commissioned by Jesus himself to start the church, preached this sermon. And that's really important for me to draw out, right? Peter preached. That's why I get up and I'm doing this very thing. That's why you were gathered here listening to this, right? And in this sermon, part of which I read in verses 22 through 36, Peter starts telling the crowd that this one true and living God, God who had created all things and planned from the very beginning, from before the foundation of the world, that at the appointed time, he would send forth his son, born of a woman, to live a perfect life. Life that you and I couldn't even dream of living so that he might give up that life by dying on a cross for sin. Right? And he foretold that long in advance. That's what Peter's drawing our attention to. Look, David said as much on a number of occasions. So God told us ahead of time that this was going to be the case. God also proved this Jesus, that his divine nature through the signs and wonders and mighty works that he performed. He lived this life of perfect obedience to God, and he gave up that life by dying on a cross for sin. You see, Jesus had to die because all people have rebelled against God. All people have rejected him and his authority, all people have tried to live their lives without him as if this is my world and I'm God, that I don't need anyone or anything else. And because God is good, because he's righteous, because he's holy, because he's just, because he's loving even, God must punish sin. This is why Jesus had to come and live that perfect life. A life that he gave up to pay the penalty that sin deserves. These people who heard, G, or heard, heard Peter speak knew that they were sinners. They knew that they needed God to save them. And God had promised to send this Messiah, this Christ, to deliver them. But they didn't understand how that would happen. And so though they were looking for the Christ to come, they didn't know what that meant. They didn't see it was in Jesus until after his resurrection from the dead. And so Peter tells them in verse 36, Know this for certain. This Jesus is both Lord and Christ, whom you crucified. And not only that, but Peter also tells them of how he witnessed that Jesus had risen from the grave. That it was not possible for death to hold him because he paid the penalty that death deserved. He satisfied God's wrath for sin. His resurrection proved without a doubt then that he is indeed both Lord and Christ. And in verse 40... It says, and with many other words, again, as a preacher, I love that. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. He appealed to them. He urged them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. And so, friends, at its most basic level, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that the one and only God, who is holy, made us in his image to know him, to love him and to be loved by him. But we sinned against God. We cut ourselves off from God in trying to live our lives without Him. And yet, in His great love for us, God became a man, Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross, thus fulfilling the law Himself and taking upon Himself the punishment that is due for our sin. And He offers this to anyone who would ever turn from their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus. He rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted his sacrifice and that God's wrath against sin has been exhausted. His resurrection then proved that he is indeed both Lord and Christ, and he now calls us by his own authority and by his great love to repent of our sin and to trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. And if we repent of our sins and we trust in Christ, then we are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God forever. Now, this is the flyby of Peter's message to them on that day. But now what I want us to do is really begin to drill down on and focus on what the crowd did in response to that message. 
In verse 37, we see that now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? It says that they were cut to the heart. They were deeply grieved. There was this real remorse and and sorrow at what they had just heard. They felt convicted about their sin. They were conscience stricken because they know that though they had not physically killed Jesus, they understood that because they were sinners who had rebelled against God, and though they had lived in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, that they too needed to be saved. And you and I are the same way. None of us is any better off than any of them. We have all rebelled against God. We have all tried to live our lives without Him. As if this is my world and I am God. We have all gladly placed ourselves under God's just and holy wrath. We've all then participated in the death of Christ. And so we all need to be saved. And so in sorrow and in desperation, they ask, brothers, what shall we do? And this is what Peter says to them in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says you must repent. That's a strange word to us, but what that means is that we turn away from our sin. We turn away from trying to live our lives for ourselves on our own terms, trying to live our lives without God, trying to stop being Lord over our own lives and to turn to God. You see, the other side of the repentance coin is faith, to believe in the Lord Jesus. And we talk about belief in Jesus, but what we do is we, we try to minimize it down to this intellectual head nod. Like, I agree intellectually. I give assent intellectually to Jesus being the Lord and Savior. But it doesn't really transform us. It, it's the belief like we believe that Pluto is, is cold and it exists even though we can't see it or take its temperature. But Pluto has no bearing upon our lives. To believe in Jesus, obviously, yes, it means to intellectually affirm who he is and what he has done, but it also means that you follow him, not your own way. You only believe as much as you do. You see, we've gotten in this real bad habit of thinking that we can somehow separate faith and obedience. And like maybe if I just obey... I don't have to really believe with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength and God will attribute that as righteous to me. Or we can go the other extreme where we say, as long as I believe, as long as I say that I believe, it doesn't matter then how I live. But we're never to separate the two of those. God promises that all who truly repent of their sin and follow after Christ will be forgiven. They will receive the Holy Spirit But yet this is a a process. This is something that we do, that we give ourselves to. Now I know that verse 38 appears to say that if you repent and you are baptized, then you are forgiven and you receive the Holy Spirit. But friends, let me ask you this. What is baptism but an act of obedience? An act of faith. Like I just said, you can't separate out faith from obedience, obedience from faith. You see, baptism is both a prayer and a promise, right? This is important for us to get, right? As a prayer, it gives voice to our faith's plea, Lord Jesus, save me. What we're doing in in baptism by identifying ourselves with Christ's death and resurrection is that a believer publicly claims faith in Christ as his his or her Lord and Savior, and he's asking God to make good on the promise that he made to save. And so baptism, in one sense, is a prayer of faith. But it's also a promise. You see, in baptism, we publicly pledge submission to follow Christ as Lord. That he is Lord of our lives. It's an oath of allegiance to follow King Jesus. 
You can't receive Jesus as your Savior without revering and loving and living for him as your Lord. And so baptism then is a willful physical response of the heart to the word of God done with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. It's done out of love. And baptism, this act of faith, this act of obedience is done for forgiveness, not so that we can be forgiven. Like that's the intended goal, that's the purpose, that's the result, but on the basis of the fact that we have been forgiven and have received the Holy Spirit, right? Because you're trusting from the heart that Jesus' prior sacrifice for sin has already resulted in your forgiveness, so you're baptized because you have been forgiven and because you have received the Holy Spirit. And Scripture is clear on this in many, many other places. Even in the book of Acts, if we were to just continue to look at Acts chapter 8 or Acts chapter 9 or Acts chapter 10 or Acts chapter 11, looking at the Ethiopian eunuch, looking at Saul, looking at Cornelius, what we see there is that there was repentance and faith. They had received the Holy Spirit before they were ever baptized. But even here in this passage, let's not forget the fact that the Holy Spirit was the one who was making all the noise in verses 1 through 4 that led up to this whole sermon, right? He's also the one who is filling Peter to preach this message, and he was the one who enabled the 3,000 to hear and to respond to God's call from verse 39, that everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And so those who believed in verse 41 heard the word and were baptized. And so baptism is an outward demonstration of one's faith in Jesus. This is why we say that baptism is an outward sign of inward faith. And so, does baptism wash away your sin? No. Does baptism save you? No. Is the Holy Spirit then given through baptism? No, but repentance, faith, confession, baptism, receiving the Holy Spirit are so closely connected throughout the New Testament that they should go together. That those who have repented and believed because they have received the forgiveness of sin and the promise of the Holy Spirit should be baptized. A command that should be as quickly obeyed as the other commands to repent and believe. Let's not forget, baptism right here, be baptized, it's a command. Just like repent is a command. All right? So confirmation is not given in the Bible simply because someone repents or someone claims to have faith. Confirmation is given only if they have repented, believed, confessed, baptized, and received the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what we see happen in verse 41. Those who received his word, they believed, were baptized, and there were added that day 3,000 souls. They confirmed that they had received the word of God by being baptized. And so baptism is an outward response to the Word of God changing our hearts. So what does that mean for us? It means that we repent and believe. And if you have not yet been baptized based upon your profession of faith, then to be baptized. They should and they need to all go together. So baptism is a confession of the heart to the Word of God. Second, Baptism is a sign of our identification with Christ. Having received God's word through Peter's sermon, the people asked the question, what should we do? And there's this necessary response. They actually have to do something, right? In verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. And again, here, repent is a command and be baptized is a command. Just like in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, we make disciples and the very first thing in that whole process is baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this is like the first thing to do on the disciple of Jesus Christ to-do list, right? Pray, check. 
Read my Bible? Check. Get baptized? Check. Join the church? Check. Right? It's not straightforward. If you understand the word, if you've repented of your sin, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died and was raised to reconcile sinful men like you and me to God, then you are to be baptized in his name. This means that you publicly identify yourself by Jesus, by his power and his authority, by his active presence as Lord of your life. Now, we often don't treat this with nearly enough weight. Baptism is kind of like our team jersey. See, God calls you to be a part of his team, not some kind of fair-weather fan. Somebody just kind of puts on the jersey on occasion, sits on the sidelines, kind of cheers them on when they're doing well or when it happens to be convenient for you. And nor are you to be someone who says that they're part of the team, but you never dress out. Well, you guys remember Rudy, the movie Rudy? Rudy, 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 right? Rudy had to get in the game for at least one play to actually officially go down on Notre Dame's books, right? He had to, it's not enough just even to dress out, had to get in the game for at least one play. And so can we really say that we're on Christ's team if we never show up or we never dress out? But even that's a really poor analogy, Because even with a team uniform, you still identify yourself with your own name. It's not the way a Christian taking on the name of Christ is to treat it. Jesus is not just something or someone that you add to your life. He's not part of your life. He's the whole thing. You see, a better analogy, better illustration would be like that of a marriage between a man and a woman. That when she covenants herself to him, she takes on his name. She's no longer identified by her maiden name, but by her married name. She now changes the way that she even signs her name. She goes to the banks and and all of the bills that she normally has to pay, and she makes sure that they change her name and anything else that has her maiden name. She goes and she gets a new driver's license with his last name and with their new address. You see, her identification is now different. She bears his name. She bears it always. Baptism is a symbol of that identification, like a new driver's license or a wedding ring on the finger. She wears that ring. She changes her driver's license to symbolize the fact that she belongs to her husband. That's what baptism is this public sign of our identification with Christ. To baptize means to immerse or to submerge. And what we do is we symbolize our union with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We actually want to picture that union in what we do. And so he's buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life. That's why we go all the way under here, or we're going to attempt to. So we'll see. We've got plenty of water to do that. And we do this because we also want to symbolize the remission of our sins, the forgiveness of our sins, and of the fact that we are now giving ourselves up to God to live and to walk in the newness of life. And by publicly identifying people as Christians through baptism, what we're now able to do as a church, as a people, is to draw clear lines between who is and who is not a Christian, who is of Christ and who is of the world. And it makes it more visible for all to see. And so, if you're hesitant to be baptized, let me just encourage you with two benefits. One, confessing faith strengthens faith. All right, so if the idea of coming up here and kind of giving your your profession of faith before God and, and the world seems like overwhelming to you, Keep in mind the fact that confessing faith strengthens faith. That's what obedience to Christ tends to do. But if that's true, then the opposite must also be true. You see, if you try to keep your faith private, it will wither and die. Our faith, just like our bodies, is strengthened by exercise. 
And baptism is an exercise of faith. And the second benefit is that baptism is a ready-made opportunity for evangelism. For your family, for your friends, for people in your community. People that would never, ever darken the door to a church, they'll come to support you in what you're doing. And so you have this opportunity to declare what the Lord has done in you and to proclaim the gospel to them in ways that they would never hear before. And it means so much more because it's coming from you. They don't care what I have to say. They don't know me from Adam. But when you say it to the people that you love, that means something. And so, can a believer, can you be a believer and not be baptized? Yes. Can you be a faithful believer in Jesus and not be baptized? Well, friends, unless something is physically prohibiting you from doing so, then no. If you think about all of the New Testament, in all of the New Testament, there was only one believer who was not baptized in response to, of his faith and his identification with Christ, and that was the thief on the cross. And obviously, he was physically unable to do so. But in all other situations, repentance, faith, profession, and baptism are the norm. This is the typical pattern. In fact, it is the only pattern that you see in the New Testament. So are you at this point unwilling to symbolize your faith in Christ by baptism? And if so, the question becomes, why? And what makes you think that you are the exception? Right? Like, this is the standard for everybody else who ever lived and was called to follow Christ except for you? Can you be faithful to a marriage and not identify yourself as married? Can you say that you are a team member and never don the uniform or take the field? Can you say that you are a Christian and be unwilling to publicly identify yourself with this ordinance, with this commanded sign of faith in Christ that visibly portrays the gospel? Again, I think the answer is an obvious no. Teammates identify themselves by their teammate. Those who love make their love known. So baptism is for all people who the Lord God has called to himself. If the Lord has called you, you are to be baptized. Verse 39 says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so get this, like if you happen to be from somewhere else, right? Christianity is not a Western thing. Baptism is not a Baptist thing. Peter doesn't say, uh, says that it doesn't really matter who you are. If you're Jew, if you're Asian, if you're Egyptian, if you're Arab, if you're American, everyone whom the Lord God of the universe calls to himself is to respond by repenting of your sin, believing in, and identifying yourself publicly with Jesus and confirming that repentance and faith through the sign of baptism. Now, at this point, our, our, baptize, our infant baptizing friends would look at this passage and they'll say, look, you see there it says this promise, it says that this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. And they would say that, you know, that supports the belief that baptism is simply a sign of the covenant, a sign of the promise that God made, this covenant of grace to Abraham and to others who followed all of God's people. So it should be available then to the children of believers and not just for those who have professed faith in Christ. Now, my first question to them would be, well, then why do you stop with your infant children? Why not include adult children or those who are far off? Because this passage would include them as well. Right? So if you're not going to baptize your unbelieving adult children, or if you're not willing to baptize those who are far off who do not follow Christ, then why would you baptize your unbelieving infants? You see, it applies the sign that represents our union with Christ to those who are not united with Christ. What it does is it divorces the sign from the reality. It's not the same sign that we see in the Old Testament. It's a new sign. It's a sign of our covenant union with Christ. 
And so why would you take that and apply it to somebody who is not united to Christ? Baptism is not for those who were born of Christian parents, but for those who have been born again. You see, the Old Testament covenant sign was circumcision. And circumcision operated through family descent, right? So I, I, in that case, my, my sons would need to be circumcised. And their sons, and their sons, and their sons, and their sons, and on and on it goes because it works through family descent. But the new covenant sign of baptism doesn't operate through birth, but through rebirth by being born again as a Christian. And so to baptize infants confuses everyone. It confuses the children. It confuses the church. It confuses the world as to who is and who is not a Christian. And so to baptize infants, again, does that, but, it, like, but it, it's, it's trying to make these two different signs one. And here's a different distinction between the old covenant sign of circumcision and the new covenant sign of baptism. The old covenant sign of circumcision says, I've given you this sign, now be made new. All right? But the new covenant sign of baptism says that this one has been made new. Do you hear the difference there? Go and make yourself new. This one has been made new. And so, if this promise here in verse 39 is for believers, then to try and apply it to unbelievers, no matter how cute or cuddly or how much you love them, it makes this promise less than a promise. Because how could they be in the promise and not of the promise? So what is this promise then? Is this speaking of that covenant of grace that they talk about that, that you, know, you want to see in the Old Testament? Well, again, context is king. What does Peter mean when Peter says this promise? Well, this promise is to repent and believe and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. The Holy Spirit that was called the promise in chapter 1, verse 4, and again in chapter 1, verse 8, and in Luke chapter 24, verse 49. Remember, Luke was the author of Acts. And so we can look back at Luke 24 and also see what he's talking about here. And so the command to be baptized and to receive the indwelling Holy Spirit is not for babies, but for anyone and everyone who, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and in response to God's call, have repented and believed and long to publicly identify themselves with Christ. And unfortunately, our babies can't do that. But even more than that, this promise is for everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And how do we know who they are? How do we know that the Lord has called them to himself? Well, those whom the Lord called on that day and every day desire to respond in obedience through repentance, faith, and baptism. And in the case of this passage, 3,000 souls whom God called responded that day by identifying them, themselves with Christ through baptism. This is God's intended response to God's work in human souls as that he leads them to Christ. This promise is for all whom the Lord God calls to himself. And so this is not something to fight against but something to delight in doing. I mean, if you have been called by God to himself, I mean, why would you not want to? Why would you not long to? Why would you not delight to or love to obey him and do what he has called us to? Those whom God calls want to obey. And those whom God calls do obey. Christians want the world to know that they are identified with Christ. And one of the first ways that they do that is through baptism. So, baptism is a confession of the heart to the Word of God. Baptism is a sign of our identification with Christ. And third, baptism is a means of confirming a professing Christian within the church. 
Now, the church is consistently referred to in Scripture as the body of Christ. And to be identified with Christ naturally means that you would be identified with his body as a member of that body. We talked about this last time. But here in verse 41, we see that so those who received his word through repentance and faith were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now the question becomes, what on earth were they added to? They were added to the church. Friends, often in America, though it's not so much the case in other parts of the world, we treat faith in Jesus as a very personal and private matter. But this couldn't be further from God's design for us. In the New Testament, it was unheard of for a believer not to be identified with a local church. In fact, in the book of Acts, you only have one account, and that was the Ethiopian eunuch. And the only reason that was the case is because he was a slave, and he had to return to where he knew that there were not other believers, and yet, I still believe that God was faithful to his promises. I believe that God would have provided a fellowship for him there, even though we're not given record of it. Because that is what the way that God operates. Everyone else who came to faith in Christ was added to a local church. Now you might ask yourself, well, could this just mean that they were added to the total number of conversions or they were added to a baptism role and not to a church? Well, again, the following verses are going to contradict that very idea. They became committed members of the church in Jerusalem. And we see it in verses 42 through 47. It says, and they devoted themselves. They committed themselves. They were faithful to. They held fast to. They persevered in the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And it says, and all who believed were together together. And they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so it's pretty clear right there from that text that they were committing themselves to sharing their lives together in order to display the glory of Christ. And friends, that's what the church is really all about. When people from different cultures or different subcultures who have nothing in common but Christ and they gather together because Christ means everything, then that displays to the world that the gospel is powerful, that the gospel transforms, that the gospel unites that it's real and active and at work in these people's lives because it doesn't make sense for them to be together unless God is doing something. And that's the whole point. This love and unity and commitment to true and right teaching that cannot be expressed by an individual who has personal or private faith can now be visibly demonstrated in the local body. See, Jesus is not saving individuals. He is purifying for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And he does this through the local church. This is just the natural progression that we see in Scripture. People hear, they respond to the word, they repent of their sin and believe in Jesus. They publicly profess that they identify, are identified with Christ through baptism and they're added into a local church. And the truth is that all of this is necessary. I mean, how can you prove that you have responded from the heart to the Word of God? How can you show the world that you are identified with Christ other than being baptized and that confirmation being shown from within the church? You see, you can't have one and two without three. The local church and no other entity or organization has been established by God as his laboratory, as the field experience, as the incubator for our faith in Christ. And there is there, it is there to show the world who is and who is not a Christian. And even more than that, 
um, than baptism, that church membership proves the reality that that this is not some momentary decision. This is not some whim or just emotional experience that so now you went and you kind of did this thing, but it has no bearing on your life. But church membership is how we demonstrate our love for each other as we participate together in the glory of Christ, in the mission of Christ to prove that the gospel is this life-transforming message. Baptism is a means of entrance into membership of a local church. Baptism is like the front door that we're all meant to walk through to enter into the house of God so that we can live together and share the family meal of the Lord's Supper together as one household of faith. And so it's important in confirming whether or not somebody is truly a Christian and you confirm them by bringing them into a local body. Now, so far, I've sought to answer the question, what is baptism? Who should be baptized? Why should I be baptized? But before we go, I need to answer one more question. Why baptize? You see, baptism is not an individual act. There are two parties involved. There's the one who desires to be baptized and there's the church because they're added to the church. And in baptism, both are declaring. Both parties are affirming. Both parties are saying something to each other and to the world. You see, baptism is an act of the church. What we're about to participate in, Clint is not the only one participating in. Or Clint and myself are not the only ones participating in it. We, Redeemer Church, are doing something here. As he is about to profess his faith in Christ and his desire to be identified with Christ and with his body, we, Redeemer Church, are affirming that profession. Now in this wonderful little book, Understanding Baptism by Bobby Jameson, a book that we are going to be using here at Redeemer for a long, long time. Nice, short, easy little read, but very dense in in explaining baptism at at an easy read level. It defines baptism as a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking him or her off from the world. Did you hear that? Let me just, let me just read it one more time. Baptism is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking off him or her from the world. You see, Clint is not the only one going on record this morning. So are we. We, the church, who have been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, according to Matthew 16, verse 19, are going on record that we believe Clint's profession to be true. That we believe that God has done a work in making him new. And that we are committing ourselves to his discipleship, to helping him to grow to maturity in Christ. And we portray it through the symbol of immersion within this church, by baptizing him, by adding him to this number, to this church. So you see, see, see this act and what we're doing as Clint and myself signing the membership covenant. That's what it's meant to do. It serves as a visible public seal to an invisible spiritual reality that we are now united in Christ, members one to another. In baptism, he is making a promise to us and we are making a promise to him. And so members of Redeemer, you are active in this baptism as well. 
just because you don't get to enter into that really cold water right there, it doesn't mean that you're not actively involved. And you're active more than just celebrating and rejoicing for what Clint has done, but what we are professing to do as a body. Friends, it is a joy for us to be able to participate with one another and with Clint in this sacred ordinance of Christ. So friends, I hope you can now see why baptism is a necessary response of faith in Christ. Why it's so significant for both the church and for the one being baptized. Christians receive baptism because baptism is a confession of the heart to the Word of God. Christians are baptized because baptism is a sign of our identification with Christ and with His body. And because baptism is a means of confirming professing Christians within the church. And so I pray that each one of us would be cut to the heart. That we would feel convicted. That we would be motivated and encouraged and built up together in following Christ and identifying ourselves with Him. Whether that be in baptism and being added to and committed to this body. But to do so, so that together we can display to the world who is and who's not a Christian. And so let's pray to that end. Bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for these words. For this reminder of just what a, what a beautiful thing baptism really is. And Lord, I pray that, that, uh, that our hearts would, would see the weight and significance of this. Lord, I, I pray that, that as we picture the gospel, this being buried with Christ and raised to walk in the newness of life, that you would use this as a, as a visible sign and as a testimony to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for the salvation of souls. I pray that we would be moved in, in, in hearing Clint's testimony of what you have done in his life and his desire to, to join with us in this church so that we can grow together to maturity in Christ and truly delight in the fact that you are a God who is working and active and drawing people to each other and to yourself. Lord, I pray that as a church, it would motivate us all the more to be intentional and committed and, and to rejoice and celebrate and, and to labor hard for, um, for our walk in this newness of life, that together we would build one another up towards maturity in Christ. And Lord, if there are those who are here who have not believed, or, or maybe they've just been slow to obey you, that that their desire would, would be to see, to taste the goodness of Christ and your wonderful purposes for us and that they would desire to respond to your word in faith with all their hearts and souls and mind and strength. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.